0: Welcome back to FOMO Sapiens, the show for people who don't just follow the crowd, but instead take their own path to success in business and in life. I'm your host, Patrick J. McGinnis, venture capitalist by day, author and podcaster by night, and FOMO Sapiens 24-7. Hoy, today, this is like, this is an epic one. I gotta tell you, I love this whole interview and this book that we're gonna talk about. And the story is this, I got in the mail, a book. And it's called Hidden Mountains, Survival and Reckoning After a Climb Gone Wrong. And as some of you know, I do some climbing, not like the people in this book, but a little climbing. I've had some scary moments, not like the people in this book, but still. And I I picked up the book and I, to be honest, when I got the, I was pitched this book for FOMO Sapiens, but I thought, I don't see the angle, but I really want to read this book. So I asked for it and I opened it on Christmas day and I read it in one sitting and I loved it. And then as I read it, I realized this is such a book for us. This is a FOMO Sapiens book because it's about people who are total FOMO Sapiens, but then they kind of get sucked in a little bit by the FOMO and do something that's very dangerous and it goes poorly. And so there's a lot of lessons around you know the FOMO Sapiens mindset of like, let's get things done, let's win, let's do things. But where does that get into a place where it's less productive and more harmful? So that's what we're going to talk about today with my guest. Michael Weichert, he is a writer and climber based in North Conway, New Hampshire, in the heart of the brittle ice and good granite of the White Mountain region. He's written for Alpinist, 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 don't know, Ascent, rock and Ice, Appalachia, 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 this is, I'm obnoxious today, this is terrible, you should turn this off, and the New York Times, and he's climbed in Alaska, Peru, Newfoundland, Newfoundland, Just kidding. Sorry. Argentina, the Canadian Rockies, and many other places. He lives off the grid in a cabin with his fiancee, who is a mountain guide. Her name is Alexa Siegel. All right. And today we're going to talk about, first of all, this is just super fascinating. If you've ever watched like Free Solo or any of those movies that are about climbing that make it look so amazing, we're going to talk about this whole industry and where it came from because it went from this very fringy thing to being something that... You know, how many movies have been put on Netflix in the last five years about climbing? It has become this very it's like Instagram, right? It's all this Instagrammable kind of stuff and very sort of scenic and and great for movies. And it's become it's captured the imagination of so many people. So we're gonna talk about that. We're gonna talk about this particular expedition gone wrong and how FOMO brought these, you know, normal people who, you know, had office jobs, how it got them into a place in the wilds of Alaska where they had a horrible dilemma. And we'll get into that too. And then we're going to hear about just what happened and what was the aftermath. And this book, I'm telling you, I loved it. It was really incredible. I, I just blew my mind. So we'll talk about the book and uh, you can learn about it and see if it's something you want to check out. Now, my small ask, again, I'm on TikTok. That's right, saying it with happiness. And you guys are checking it out, which I really appreciate. I've been getting some nice feedbacks, ideas, thoughts. So go check it out at Patrick J. McGinnis on TikTok. It's also, of course, the reels are over on Instagram. So just go check it out, see what you think. Give me feedback, especially those of you who are avid TikTokers. What should I be doing on TikTok? I don't know, you should tell me. (laughs) All right, thank you so much. And now onto the interview. As you know, I like to start every interview with the same question, and the question is this, what's a formative decision you've had to make to get to where you are today? I think a formative decision
1: for all writers is the decision to pursue that craft, right? And it's not an easy one, and you have to have a lot of faith in yourself, and the road um, is always a little tricky to actually get there, and. It's a lot of ups and downs. And now that, uh, you know, this book is out, it feels crazy to look back on that formative decision and the decision to say, "Okay, I'm going to do this despite everything that might stand in my way and despite, you know, ignoring a lot of good opportunities and and really having faith in myself to do so. So that I think that would be the big one. And that decision I made pretty early on, I think.
0: Yeah, you know, it's funny. So we're going to talk a lot today about climbing and time in the mountains and writing a book is not that different i mean obviously you know you don't need like a ice axe to write a book but for me anyway both my books i went one i I went to maine in the winter the other i went to mexico city i kind of hid away i chipped away at it all day every day it's kind of a solitary thing you get a lot of flow out of it so like some of the, I guess, the flow that you probably get from climbing, you also get when you write a book. Yeah, they're
1: they're very similar. And the, there's a lot of suffering involved in both, right? Like you're... you're <laughs> oh, so much anger. <laughs> you've got to love, you've so gotta love the process, not just the result, because uh, you
0: don't always get there in both pursuits. Yeah, if you love self-doubt, you're going to love today's show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we're going to be talking today about your new book. It's called Hidden Mountains, Survival and Reckoning After a Climb Gone Wrong. And I, as I was telling you in the pre-interview, I ordered this book. I got pitched this book by your publicist and I just I just wanted to read it. I didn't know if there was a fit for the show. And I sat and read it in one seating in, in Christmas Day. And that was it. And then I followed you on Instagram. So, you know, I was I was really into this. Now, I want to start with just a little a little fun fact about you. So you, in your bio, you say you live off the grid. So explain that for folks. Yeah, what's up with that? So speaking of uh, hard decisions to, to
1: become a writer or, or to become where you are professionally, but I, I need to update that. I live in a house now, but for two and a half years, my wife and I lived in a cabin with no running water on a friend's property and it was depressing how much the cabin actually looked like uh, the one that Thoreau lived in. It was 12 foot by 12 foot. So really teeny, it had a loft and we'd have to fetch water. We cooked on a gas stove, a little propane camp stove. And uh, we did this kind of during the pandemic and last year we bought a house. So I'm, I'm
0: kind of cheating by keeping that up on my bio. But um, no, it's (laughs) very little house on the prairie over there. But let me ask you a question: Now that you're back in in a a house, do you and you know you're sort of? I imagine that you don't have like a seven TVs in your house, but still, like, is leaving you know going into a more conventional living setting and like where you have just you know, is it? Do you feel less happy? Or is it? What are the trade offs there?
1: Well, the trade offs I think are uh, convenience, right? And the the thing with living in a small space like that is you're so absorbed by your chores, like everything. It's, it takes hours and hours for upkeep and, and just to sort of stay on the level with, with uh, doing dishes, you know, doing dishes by hand, heating up water, uh, showering, we'd have to shower outside. So heat up water to shower. I mean, it was incredibly Spartan, but now I, I do sort of miss the simplicity, but I also have to say it, it's pretty amazing to have things like a dishwasher and modern amenities. But in terms of focus and in terms of living a, a simple life, it's something that I'll never regret. I mean, it was a wonderful time.
0: Yeah, it's an education like many of us. I mean, you your particular flavor of education is probably different than a lot, but all the resets, right, in the pandemic kind of prepared us for this moment, hopefully. Now, I do want to start by talking about you know this is a book about a mountain expedition gone wrong by these four people who were you know pretty serious climbers but also like had day jobs it's not like they're alex connold right but i think you know every time i go to netflix there's some new movie that makes climbing look amazing and it you know climbing has become one of these things that was a very fringy thing 40 50 years ago that has become like a big industry it's a weekend warrior kind of thing just to frame up the conversation today talk about the evolution of climbing in the popular culture and how it has sort of become something that lots of people do not just sort of like the most intrepid explorers
1: yeah so climbing especially in the united states was as you say always really fringe and and there was certainly a devoted following but it was word of mouth. If you wanted to learn how to climb, you needed to live close to a cliff. You needed to live in a mountain town um, like North Conway where I live. But nowadays, uh, the proliferation of climbing gyms um, has really led to this explosion in popularity in the sport. So that's one thing that's happened. And, and gyms came to the U.S. around the early 90s were the first gyms. And nowadays, um, you know, if a gym doesn't have a workout room, if they don't offer yoga, if they don't offer, you know, a coffee bar, like it's a whole package and it's become this cultural thing. And, you know, millions of people in the United States are discovering that you can go to a climbing gym after work for a few hours and get a great workout, meet a bunch of really cool people and have an amazing time. And so suddenly this sport that was once practiced by a bunch of sort of fringe zealots and crazies has blown up in the United States. And on the other side of, of the coin, we've got people who, like Alex Honnold, who are becoming famous. Um, the idea that you can film a climber, uh, that, that you can follow along on an expedition has led to climbers being viewed, you know, these elite climbers being viewed a little more like um, quote unquote normal sports stars. And so those,
0: those two things have led to this explosion in the sports popularity. Yeah, and I got to think Instagram too, right? I mean, it's like everything else. It's like van life, climbing, all of these things that um, that are in real life. You know, being on a climbing wall is one thing, but if you fall, theoretically, you know, you're gonna make it. It's a whole different thing when you get out into the elements, when you're on a mountain, when the weather turns, when it rains, when all of these things that on Instagram you can't you can't experience, when you're out in the woods you know, it's like, that's not going to save you. Right. And so this, bu- this is this book is about that. And, you know, I, without giving away the whole story, frame up what this book is about, the, the this, this hike, this not more than a hike, this climb gone wrong. So the
1: premise of the book is that these four really close friends had had grown up uh, not climbing they, they dabbled like a lot of people you know um, Emmett who's the main character who the story really revolves around had climbed at, at, in a boy scout camp when he was a kid but that was kind of it and years later they started climbing together uh, in Boston mostly in a gym they slowly sort of graduated to climbing outside and they started to travel all around the world doing this sport Um, a friend of theirs had been sort of one of those old hardcore zealot crazy climbers back in the day and said, Hey, you know, you should really try this Alpine climbing thing. You should go to Alaska where there are mountains that nobody's set foot on. And that's a jarring contrast to the way most people climb now. Um, And they started to sort of become obsessed with this idea of climbing new routes, which is the cutting edge of the sport, right? If you climb something for the first time, then your name goes on it. You get to name the route, and in this case, uh, these these were peaks, mountains, entire mountains in Alaska that had never been summited before. And as far as most people can tell, um, some of these areas had never even been visited. You know, one or two people probably set foot on the snowfield below this peak. So they decided to plan an expedition, and the idea of being far out there was, again. Is, something novel for them but at the end of the day on the first day of actual climbing after about a week of, of trying to get to this peak um, something went horribly wrong and Emmett took a catastrophic fall was out of sight from his partner his his girlfriend at the time and hundreds of feet away from John and Alyssa or the other two climbing uh, the other climbing team and the stories sort of starts from there of what happens when something goes wrong like this in a remote mountain range nowadays. And one of the first things they did was call for help. And that was something that you couldn't do 20 years ago, right? And even 10 years ago. But technology nowadays allows us to call for help anywhere in the world. And um, this story is kind of what happens when that call goes through.
0: but only for our listeners at babel.com slash FOMO. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash FOMO. That's spelled dot com slash FOMO. Rules and restrictions may apply. FOMO. Yeah, and it's just to underline the point, like these people, they get dropped off by like a plane in the middle of nowhere in Alaska, and then they cut through the, the, the forest for days. They kind of miscalculated. They're carrying all this stuff, and they get there and they're like oh we don't really have as much time to do as we want to do the kind of thing we wanted to, we thought we were going to do we had to change that up so it's kind of like you know it's this slow motion unraveling of a plan and as a you know as anybody who's been an entrepreneur or or, or been experienced like that where you you can't control things around you like as these things start to go wrong like more and more potentially bad things become possibilities right and I thought it was interesting like Emmett, who's the main character you know, more than a character it's his life it's a true story, but he's like an MBA from Darden and works in the corporate sort of you know world and you know he worked at Bain and he would go every weekend and climb out so it's this is fascinating like anybody listening to the show can relate to the to the to the people who are in this book. I do want to like just start with the motivations because it is you know. <laughs> It seems to me like this is one of those things that, like, it sounds like a great idea on paper when you're sitting in, you know, when you're in Boston with, you know, the old grizzled climbing guy who's your hero. And then you sort of like it's like put, you put the toe in the water and then your foot and all of a sudden you're in the hot tub. Like, do you see this a lot with people who climb that people it's, it's not that they're inexperienced, but that they commit to do things that are very risky without realizing what they're getting themselves into?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think especially now, as, as you pointed out earlier, there's that the Instagram factor where you see the really cool shot. And what you don't see is how sweaty they are, how early they had to get up to get there or sometimes how dangerous it is. And, uh, you know, we have a saying in climbing where, you know, the best planning happens on the couch next to the wood stove. And when you're comfortable, you can convince yourself to do a lot of stuff. But then when you're out there, it's a whole different ballgame. Um, these climbers were all really driven. And I think their careers sort of state that, right? Like they, they all came from backgrounds where they had fought pretty hard to be successful and climbing rewards that climbing rewards, that optimism and, uh, working for control on a climb, which ultimately is, is the
0: the balance. What is the role of stoicism in all this? Like, you know, everybody wants to be a stoic (laughs) nowadays, you know, all this Ryan holiday stuff and people it's true it's like it's like i'm like the least stoic person i know so i think it's all a little ridiculous but but it does seem to me that there is this culture of climbing is like keep calm and carry on and you know you're you're doing it's like if you've ever climbed the mountain like it's an unforgiving thing even though you have all of these safety sort of things you can't mess around you have to be really smart about weather and there's a lot of these things that you have to sort of factor in But there is also a culture of like, you know, I'm just going to do this thing. Like, how does that all what is the psychology around around that kind of part of the climbing world?
1: Yeah, I think it comes down to that control and what you know, what's a perceived risk climbing, uh, what what you're afraid of versus what's a real risk climbing. And you look at something like an avalanche hazard and you say to yourself, well, you know, that's something that. The only way I can control it is by deciding to go or not go. So you're given, you're given this set of known risks and unknown risks, and you have to sort of figure out where your decision and where your tolerance for those risks fit, fits into your day. And sometimes you're going to say, well, okay, the avalanche hazard is a little iffy. Is it worth it to, is it worth it to keep going, or do we want to turn around? And sometimes when you continue on a climb, you shouldn't. And sometimes, um, when you're climbing, you know, you get to a point where you can't go down and you have to keep going. And it is sort of that, like the point at which you're committed, how do you react and how do you, how do you force control into that situation versus, uh, sort of losing your cool. And when you, When you mentally get to the point, you start to unravel.
0: Yeah, exactly. Now we get to a point where, where you have your protagonists in the, in the, in the book are on, they're in this mountain. They're like days away from, you know, everybody in the middle of Alaska. One of the characters is critically injured, the, the people in the book. And then, you know, guess what shows up to save the day? technology. And this is the part that I was I think it's just the story is so like internal, but it's so modern, because it's like nowadays, there's an app for everything, right? It's like, (laughs) they probably could have tried to do like an Uber Eats order in the middle of Alaska, I think. But how does technology play into this ability to push the boundaries? And what are the limits of technology in these kinds of situations? That's a great question. So since I wrote
1: this book, Apple, The new iPhone has come out, which has basically what I describe the the DeLorme or the Garmin inReach. is the little satellite texting device that the climbers had to of, that allowed them to call for help um, miles and miles and miles away from any road. Uh, The new iPhone has a satellite SOS device built in. Um, So now, not only do you have to buy, you don't have to buy an extra device. Anybody in the United States can suddenly push a button, even if they're out of service, right? You can have no bars, you can be in the middle of nowhere, you can push a button and somebody is coming for you. Um, And in this case... The climbers, after about an hour of realizing that Emmett's position and his injuries were so severe that they couldn't rescue him on their own, they sort of hemmed and hawed, and they decided to push that button, um, the SOS button. Mm -hmm. Um, They didn't really, they had a little bit of inkling of who was going to come for them, but they ended up initiating a rescue by the 176th wing um, of the Alaska Air National Guard, which is the Pararescuemen, the PJs, who were uh, some of the most qualified combat and civilian rescuers in the United States. Um, They were lucky. If they had been somewhere else, it would have been a volunteer team, um, like I'm part of here in New Hampshire, who would basically hike to walk to them. So you know, despite being able to push that button, you're still dependent on weather, you're still dependent on conditions, and you're still dependent on where you are to know who's actually going to come and, and get you. But the the fact is that more and more people are going into the outdoors and more and more people are calling for help. So we've got to figure out what's on the other side of that. What's What's the response looking like going
0: forward with this increased technology? Yeah, what's kind of crazy, and you write about this, is yeah, the technology's there. So that's insane about the iPhone, by the way. That's good to know because... Yeah, not a lot of people I, have I, paid I never, attention to that. I end up in some dodgy situations from time to time. So it's good. good, good, good. What, where do I press, by the way? For who's listening, where do we? what do we have to do?
1: I, I think it's on the... I, I don't have an iPhone 14, but it's on the Apple website. Um, <laughs> and they've got explicit instructions where it works. I don't think it works in Canada yet. and um, I could be wrong about no. that, but...
0: Nothing's going to happen bad in Canada. No, no. no. (laughs) Okay. So that's good. But one of the things that you talk about, which is, so, and this is kind of where, this is where, like, for me, it it just all gets super real because, okay, as as a way I think about this entire topic and, like, I read this, you know, it's not every book that I read for this podcast, even though I have people on, but I did read this one, like, every page and I cried four times and it was a whole thing. But because uh, it's real and, and it's, it's pretty, there's a lot of, there's, it's a sad story and with, with a lot of reality, but it's like you have people who are like you and me, well, you're actual climber, but like me, who have the resources and the time and the desire and they like to win. And so they set an audacious goal for themselves. And they know, well, you know, if something bad happens, I've got all this backup system, right? And so something bad happens, you're sort of prepared, but yet in the moment, like who can make great decisions, right? It's it's so difficult. And then you press the button waiting for the escape. And in this case, there is an escape. But in lots of cases, like there's just not, you're not going to get rescued. The money isn't there. The external factors aren't there. This is a, you know, this is a, a completely under-resourced part of the world, in terms of, you know, getting this, helping people escape. Why? Because, you know, getting people off the side of a mountain in Alaska is not a, a small feat. And so there is this reality for everybody that, you know, for all of us who are doing these things that, that are audacious and crazy and fun and amazing and Instagramable. Like when you press that button, it may be that nobody comes to get you, right? Is, that's kind of the, the 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 reality behind all of this.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I um, recently was in the Cordillera Blanca in Peru, where Touching the Void took place. And we were doing a climb that uh, we didn't ultimately complete, but, you know, we were up there for two or three days. And, you know, it's high altitude. um, And we're sitting there saying, you know, it doesn't really matter if we press the in-reach button because by the time the search and rescue team gets to us, um, we'll probably be dead. And uh, places like the Himalaya and other places where people are climbing, the support is so varied. And I would encourage folks who want to do these activities to look into what local resources are actually going to come get them when stuff goes wrong. So yeah, it's, it's still
0: quite a patchwork. Yeah, I mean, and, and I don't want to... By the way, it sounds like we're like saying all bad things about these things. I mean, they're amazing things and the vast majority of people are fine. But I think it's more about like, it gets back to like Instagram versus reality. If you simply take the time to understand the risks, you may make a slightly different decision about how kind of audacious you want to be when you're going into these things. FOMO, FOMO. Now, I do want to talk a little bit about, one thing that I thought was really interesting in the subculture of climbing and that kind of, it makes, makes me feel like a little sad actually is that you know, you have Emmett, who is the the protagonist of the book, who ends up, you know, with a lifelong injury and can't climb anymore, and and then you know, the kind of the world goes on without him. Like all the people he climbed with, it's not like they just stopped climbing because they saw that and it changed their you know perspective. And they said, like, for now on, we're not going to do that. They just kind of kept going, and I was really interested about like what drives people even when they've been through a life threatening experience where they saw somebody they know, you know, basically become very, um, you know, very affected, like what keeps people going in the, in this kind of, in this kind of world? Yeah, that's
1: a good question. And I I should point out that the, the climbers who were there, John and Alyssa, uh, the couple, especially, Mm -hmm. and Lauren, who's Emmett's girlfriend to a, uh, to a different degree, have remained steadfastly loyal to him, but um, certainly yeah. the, the greater climbing community has to deal with these losses or or, or life altering injury a lot, and figuring out how to keep going through that is is up to an individual. But many climbers who are obsessed with this this pastime, um, who really get into it, you know, they, they have to deal with this stuff. And ultimately, there's something about being out in the mountains and to continue on that path that is therapeutic in a way. Um, it's a balancing act, and sometimes it feels really unhealthy. But a, a lot of people feel like getting back into the mountains is, is the most important thing. And, and certainly the climbers in, in this book felt that way, where they all um, continue to be heavily involved in climbing. And there's something sort of addicting about that, right? Like it's it's undeniable that um, it, it changes your perspective on a lot of stuff. And, and maybe it's just this acceptance of risk. Um, I think when I was younger, it certainly felt like I was, I didn't think it could happen to me. And that was part of why I kept doing it. And now, now I do so cautiously knowing that, well, it's actually kind of
0: crazy. Nothing has happened to me. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, to that point, yeah, you're right. Like his friends, do stand by him and really are there for him. But what I kind of, it made me think it's like, kind of like if you're part of a religion or a church and then you leave that religion, it's not that people hate you, it's just that you don't have that common bond anymore. It's like, you can't, if you're not, if if climbing is the thing that brought you to these people and all of a sudden you're not doing it, it's like you get together and you're like, what are you gonna talk about? Like (laughs) Netflix. And so it does it's so much of a part of people's identity it's not just climbing it's many things whether it's you know a religious thing whether it's a nonprofit. it's just remembering i think the takeaway i had from this is like remember that you know when you do stuff you may have friends that you have shared excitement with or experiences with around a specific topic but you do want to make sure that you also have the people in your life who it doesn't matter what the activity is that you you want to build community that's you know, deeper than that as well.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I think to that point, I think that's one of the most remarkable things about the friendships they had was it, it it did end up um, proving deeper than just climbing, which might be the superficial thing.
0: So, yeah, so it's remarkable how they've stuck together. Now, just to close here, I mean, we, you know, we've been talking about the risky side of climbing, but I, I do want to talk about, you know, you have you're an intrepid climber you've climbed all over the place you live in north Conway, new hampshire which is not just great for climbing but great for its outlets as well amazing for its out outlets, there. yeah gotta go to the outlets <laughs> come, but come uh the and stay and, for the outlets. yeah and there's also as a, when i was a kid we used to go there to do these like slides down the mountain in the summertime at this ski resort and stuff so i grew up about an hour from there but uh talk about you know for all the folks here who are interested in climbing and maybe are looking you know, add it into their, you know, mix of things, like what's a great way, no, independent of all these things we just talked about, what's a great way for anybody to to start, you know, get it, dip a toe into the world of climbing because it's so, so many really successful people I know and amazing people I know also climb. And so there is clearly a correlation between climbing and entrepreneurship and just really interesting, awesome people who want to take on the world. So what's a great sort of gateway into that world? Well, I, I would say that starting in a climbing gym is a, a, sort of
1: non-committing way to start climbing. And then I would encourage if you, if you become obsessed with it, first of all, know that just like any type of entrepreneurship, it's going to take a long time and be prepared to sort of strap on for the long haul and progress, but hiring a guide and figuring out the right way to do things. Um, and you can find most guides like in North Conway. Just Google climbing in North Conway. Come up, try it out. And it, it is a remarkable sport that will take you all over the world. And uh, you'll meet some wonderful people doing it. So I, 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 don't, I don't want this book to discourage anybody from climbing. It is, uh, it's a great joy to be in the mountains
0: or be at a cliff um, with friends. Yeah, you definitely don't have to go to Alaska <laughs> and trek three days through the woods <laughs> To climb, you can do it in your very own community and climbing wall in a very safe way. It's also, you can get super ripped. So it's just a good thing to consider to add into your life. Now, the book is Hidden Mountains Survival and Reckoning After a Climb Gone Wrong. If you want to find out more about this and about Michael, you can find him at his website. It's michaelweichert.com. That's W E J C H E R T. Or you can find him on Instagram at Mikey Weichert. Michael Weichert. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me on. FOMO. If you like today's show, please be sure to rate it and recommend it to your friends. And as always, you can find me on Instagram at Patrick J. McGinnis, on Twitter at PJ McGinnis, and on the web at FOMOSapiens.com or PatrickMcGinnis.com, where you can get all kinds of free resources to live a more decisive and entrepreneurial life. FOMO Sapiens is recorded in New York City.